It doesn't matter how bad and hopeless something can seem if you are determined and put your mind to it. We can turn it around. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Raw Safari. Hello, 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 and welcome back once again to the Rossafari Podcast. I am so glad that you are here with me again. So today's episode is a fairly long interview with a really amazing person, so I want to get right to it. So let's be quick here. All right. Rossafari.com is the website, at Rossafari on Instagram and Facebook for pictures and other cool zoo-related things, as well as podcast-related things. Patreon.com slash Rossafari is where you can support the pod, and Rossafari.redbubble.com is where you can go for merch. Today, I'm going to be taking you to Salt Lake City to one of only two all-bird zoos in the country, the Tracy Aviary. We're going to be talking to Helen DeShaw, who is just amazing. I can't even go into it here. Just prepare to have your mind blown with the amazing information, incredible birds that she's going to introduce you to, but also just the way she looks at animals and, frankly, the world. Get ready to think about animals, training, and behavior in a completely different way than you ever have before. All right. Without further ado, here is my interview with Helen DeShaw of the Tracy Aviary. All right. So tell me who you are, where you work, and what you do there. All right. So, uh, well, my name is Helen DeShaw. I am the curator of bird programs at Tracy Aviary, which is an all bird zoo. Uh, in Salt Lake City, Utah, we're AZA accredited facility um, specializing in birds. Uh, we're one of the only two um, freestanding public aviaries in the country. The other one, of course, being the National Aviary, which is in Pittsburgh. Uh, so proud to work at an all bird zoo. That's amazing. Um, so before we get into birds, let's talk about you a little bit. Um, I'm noticing just the slightest accent. So uh, where are you? Where are you from? <laughs> yeah, it it's funny because people will ask me all the time. You know where I'm from. Obviously, picking up on the accent. Uh, I'm I'm from uh, the UK originally. Uh, originally Newcastle, which is just south of the border of Scotland. So most people, if they take a stabbing guess at my accent, will ask me if I'm Scottish. Uh, I wish I did have a Scottish accent. That's actually my favourite accent. And if you heard a real Scottish person, you wouldn't ask me if I was Scottish. But there must be just enough of that influence that that's what people hear. But the funny thing about it is um, I've lived in the United States now for 30 years. So I consider myself an American at this point uh, with English roots. Uh, and in my head, I don't have an accent. So I don't hear your accent, your 
American accents anymore. It just sounds normal to me. And as far as I'm concerned, I talk the same way. Uh, obviously not. Uh, but when I talk to people from the UK um, or they see me on a video or likely hear me on this podcast or whatever, they think I've got an American accent. So there you go. You, you, I guess you hear and pick up on what's different. That's amazing. I always I always say, you know, it's important to realize that everyone has a, a different perspective on things. And that's a that's a great example of that. Um, yeah. Very cool. So tell me how you got into um, taking care of animals and keeping and, and what's what's your history with that a little bit? So I've been into animals all my life. I mean, it, it, back uh, as far as I can remember, and then stories from my family as well. I mean, back when you know, my sister was into uh, dolls and Barbies and, you know, all the traditional things. I only ever wanted uh, stuffy animals and all my sort of childhood games were I was a zookeeper or I worked at the circus or, you know, whatever it was, um, training animals. And my sister was always the obliging critter. Uh, at the time so she was the dog or the elephant or the monkey or whatever it was I, I wanted to be playing at that time so uh, just in my roots um, a fun little story from that actually uh, so my sister is um, beautiful a beautiful girl with you know really big doughy eyes and just lovely and so when I was little, because I was such an animal geek, I, I knew all kinds of weird and wonderful animals. And uh, I, my nickname for her was Bush Baby, which if you know <laughs> anything about Bush Babies, they've got the big eyes and cute little little things. And I'd carry her around on my hip and she was the Bush Baby and I was the zookeeper and what have you. And when I first uh, got into my professional career where I was working with legit animals uh, uh, as an adult or exotic animals anyway, I started before that with domestic animals. Uh, I happened to, what are the odds, have a bush baby um, that was part of the the core group of animals that I worked with. He was part of a mixed species show I did many years ago. And uh, I remember sending my sister a photo of me with an actual bush baby. And I just wrote on the back of it, you've been replaced. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. Yeah. Oh, man. So, yeah, all my life, animals. Um, my family, not, not so. Um, my sister's actually really allergic to uh, cats and dogs. She has asthma. And uh, my mom is not really an animal person. They don't dislike animals. They're just not geeky about it like I am. So it took me until I was uh, 14 years old to swindle my mom into letting me get a dog. And uh, and then um, I worked with, uh, helped at farm. So I worked with sheep and cows and horses to start off with. And then first started in um, the zoo world in my early 20s, uh, back in New York, at a zoo there, working with um, lots of different species of animals at that time, uh, before I eventually narrowed it down to specializing in birds. And that was the Seneca Park Zoo, correct? 
Correct. Yep. Okay. In Rochester, New York. I yeah. love Seneca Park. It's a great zoo. Um, All right. So I always love to do this. I love to throw my guests off slightly. So you're here to talk about birds. But I yeah. know for a fact that you took care of a binturong while you were at Seneca Park Zoo. And I that's did. one of my favorite species. So will you tell me just a little bit about your binturong friend? Uh, sure. Uh, his name was Bart. And uh, he was, you know... Typical binturong smelled like popcorn or gym socks or, or whatever you want to say. Uh, yeah, they're pretty great animals. Um, it's I'd never actually um, encountered a binturong before I worked with him. And they weren't commonly, as commonly as seen as they are now in ambassador programs. But uh, yeah, they're, they're pretty great. He was a fun guy. So I'm curious. I, one thing I've come to learn about binturongs is that there there seem to be. I mean, they all have their own personality, but there are the ones that are lovers, and there are the ones that are are fighters and are screamers. So which was Bart? He was middle of the road. So it, yeah, he was like any animal. You know, a lot of the times I I get asked with the birds or any animals that you're working with. You know, one of the questions you'll get asked is, oh, is it friendly or does it bite or, you know, whatever it is. As if people have got this kind of notion that an animal is one thing or another. And I, you know, I always delight in um, enlightening people on that front that animals um, non-human animals are multifaceted just like we are. So I like to consider myself a friendly person and hopefully that's your experience that you're having with me right now. But put me in a different situation um, with a, you know, a, a different environment, different things going on and different people around and I can be downright unfriendly. So I'm not just one thing and neither are the animals that we work with. They're friendly they're, and unfriendly. They're happy and sad, they're kind and mean, you know, they're all of those things and, and or they have the potential to be all of those things. And it just depends what's going on in their environment at the time and what behavior you're going to see from them. So Bart was the Binturong, was really great around um, people that he knew. And as long as the circumstance was to his um, liking and approval, but if you got on the wrong side of him or you, you know, put him on the defensive or got him into a situation where he wasn't comfortable, he could be um, not something to be trifled with, let me tell you, because <laughs> a, a binturong that's not very happy is, uh, is not a lot of fun to be around. But, uh, you know, aren't we all? So it's... Um, situational really and and right. he was a complicated dude uh not one thing or another makes sense i love that that's uh thank you for sharing that um and your thoughts on the complexity of animals i think you're right i think even a lot of us that love animals have the tendency of being like oh this one's a sweetheart oh this one's a cutie and you're right we don't do that with humans too often and when we do we often find out that we were very wrong so yeah, um, one of the things that I always teach people when I'm I'm teaching anything about working with animals uh, in a, a training capacity, I, and I always say, if, if you don't take anything else away from what I'm about to tell you, take this one thing. 
that when you um, assign these kind of subjective labels to an animal, and, and we actually do do it with people as well, if you think about it, we'll, we'll say, you know, I have an experience with an individual and be like, wow, they're nasty, or wow, she's super nice, you know. And the reality of it is in that moment, that might be what you experience, but that doesn't, that's just behavior in a moment. It doesn't define what the individual is or who the individual is. It just talks about their behavior in that given moment. So I teach people, if you can drop those labels right out of your vocabulary, like stop talking about an animal being aggressive or sweet or mean or stubborn or friendly or any of those things, um, you'll do the animal and yourself a great service because those are behaviors. They're not character traits. And, uh, you know, there's a danger in assigning, particularly the negative behaviors. So the minute you decide that an animal is aggressive. So if you came to, to my facility, for example, and I said, you know, I'm going to introduce you to our Andean condor, who's a huge intimidating looking bird. And I said to you, oh, oh by the way, John, he's aggressive. Um, all of your body language and all of your behavior is going to be completely affected by that one statement from me. And you, you know, you may very well get what you're expecting just because you're giving off anxious vibes. And now the animal's like, what is happening? Um, so I, I definitely think, you know, we talk about behavior um, in terms of what we can see and what we can observe and try to avoid assigning the motives um, that then label the animal as being just one thing when we all know they're multifaceted. And I always tell people it's a good life lesson too, because if you can do it with the people around you and uh, recognize that we're all reacting to our environment and uh, past consequences of behavior or what happened immediately before, and none of us really can know what's going on in somebody else's world. So it just, it's a better way to be, I think, is. Uh, to drop those. Um, Dr. Susan Friedman actually talks a lot about labeling and more unlabeling. And she's got some great graphics about that, just getting rid of those uh, designations, you know. Wow. Uh, we're 10 minutes in and this just, this got deep quick. I'm, thank, <laughs> thank you for all of that, though. I really, I think that is such a great way of looking at things. And um, yeah, you're right. That's going to make me really think as I move forward talking to people about their animals. So so thank you for that. You're welcome. We can keep it more lighthearted than that. Oh no, I mean I <laughs> I love to be real. Truth. We we'll, we'll get we'll get to the birds and stuff, but no, I I love moments like that. That's, you know, my uh, this podcast started as a way to introduce people to animals and zoos, but mm -hmm. has quickly morphed into introducing people to the people behind the animals and zoos because there are so many brilliant people and passionate people and and the work y'all are doing is just incredible and um so no I, I love those moments where you just you know you just told me a big part of how you look at the world and i i appreciate the heck out of that so thank you you're welcome thanks um, for listening <laughs> of course yes so now you did mention um an andean condor and uh, you have a pretty famous one of those. So, so I, tell me, 
tell me about this and uh, about Andy N. Condor. That's right, I do. He is larger than life. He's uh, he's um, really, really incredibly great and humbling for me. So I've worked with him for about 10 years now. Uh, when I first got to Tracy Aviary, he was an exhibit bird. He's 61 years old. He's been there since he was a year old. Oh, um, okay. So can I interrupt for just one second? Uh-huh. Then? Sorry, but what is what is the life expectancy for uh, an Andean condor? So in the wild, not that long, um, for sure. Uh, like most animals, when they get into a situation where they live in human care, it can quite dramatically extend their life expectancy just because it's easier for them, you know, less stressful and um, they'll live longer. Uh, in human care, the oldest Andean condor, um, I believe, was in its uh, late 70s Whoa. when it died. Yeah, so I'm hoping Andy's got a few decades left uh, to to inspire as he does. But yeah, he he hatched at San Diego Zoo. Um, back in 1959, and he came to the aviary when he was a year old, and he's been there ever since. So I quite frequently meet people at the aviary who are there with their grandkids uh, and tell me that they brought their kids to see Andy and came to see Andy when they were kids themselves. And that's a pretty amazing legacy for a bird that he's been um, inspiring generations of, of people. Um, long before I knew him. Uh, I started working with him, as I said, about 10 years ago. He's uh, not to label, (laughs) as I just (laughs) said, not to do, uh, but generally speaking, he is a very um, laid back, easygoing, uh, genial guy, which is not terribly typical for Andean condos. They can be quite tough birds um so when i started working at the aviary i was like wow this bird has got some potential so i talked to our uh, executive director and asked if i could work with him and he said well what do you want to do and i said oh bring him out on you know bring him out into the aviary and he thought i was kidding and i'm like no i'm really serious so Thankfully, my uh, boss is very open-minded and uh, gave me the opportunity to uh, work with Andy and see what we could do. And so cut into today, long story short, although I'll talk about him for a full hour if you want, uh, is uh, he does come, he comes out, he walks around the aviary, he does public walks. Um, he it, we'll have him like, you know, a couple of feet away from babies and kids and, and all kinds of things. He's just the most incredible, incredible being. Um, and like I said, very humbling to be his dutiful sidekick, I'll tell you that. And vultures, I, I mean, I love vultures. Andean condors, of course, are the largest species of vulture in the world. And I always say they're like the 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 pinup boys of the vulture world because they're just so darned handsome in their black and white formals all the time. Um, but vultures are pretty uh, underappreciated birds, actually, although it's getting a little better. I'll say that uh, years ago when I'd tell people vultures were my favorite bird, I'd get all kinds of weird, well, what? <laughs> you know, of all the birds there are out there, why that? They're so ugly, they're gross, you know, this and that. Um, these days, uh, 
I think people are coming around <laughs> to vultures and, and how cool and important they are. Um, but Andy himself has been just a tremendous force for being an ambassador for vultures, um, both at the aviary and just worldwide. Like you said, he's he's pretty famous. He's got his own Facebook page. He has got a following like you wouldn't believe. And people just, rightfully so, I might add, just adore him. And uh, on his fan page, you know, people talk directly to him and uh, just absolutely love him. And I think he's he's done a lot for sort of changing hearts and minds about um, vultures and what amazing birds they are. So it's my honor and privilege to uh, uh, work with Andy and Condor. That is amazing, and yeah, I um I will I, I will admit I had not heard of the page until um uh, Andrew, our, our mutual friend, uh you know introduced us and said to check it out. But wow, it's awesome, and you do a great job curating that page, and he does a great job being adorable, and um you know <laughs> obviously being the the main draw there. Um, but yeah, what a what an amazing bird, and I know that Andy recently had uh, a couple of eye surgeries. So tell me about all of this. He did. That was um, horrible, actually. So he's, as I said, sixty-one years old, and so he, he's been developing cataracts, as can happen in uh, older animals of any species. Um, and he was managing quite okay with them, but then they started to pro- progress. To the point that I was noticing observable changes in his behavior. And, um, you know, it's dangerous anytime you do a surgery on any animal. I mean, including humans going under anesthesia, there's no guarantees. It's a, a risky business. And the older you get, the, the more risky it is for sure. Uh, but, you know, it reaches a point where the quality of life for the individual is more important than than anything else and and um there are fates worse than death you know so living an inferior quality of life is one of those uh so we it it i had to work myself up to it but we eventually like okay we need to do this surgery he developed cataracts in both eyes so i really don't know how much he was he could still see a little bit but but not much so he had his surgery. Um, we've got a brilliant ophthalmologist, animal uh, eye care doctor here in uh, Salt Lake City, Dr. McLaren. And she she's actually done a cataract surgery previously on uh, my barn owl, who also got cataracts, same deal, completely restored her vision, which was wonderful. So... Here we went into surgery with with Andy. Um, now I'm hopeless when this is happening, so I just am like a, a, an absolute basket case. And thankfully, I've got really, really good supportive coworkers at Tracy Aviary that um, helped with that. And we have an absolute Andy himself, his personal veterinarian, Dr. Scott Eccles, is actually a world renowned avian veterinarian. So. He'd got the best possible team, and he he came through his surgery really well. It was a great success, um, but he had a very, very hard time coming out of his anesthesia, and he did end up uh, crashing, 
and which was awful. And I, I can only talk about it now because he successfully recovered. But the, the day that he crashed, um, we spent the whole night with him. Thankfully, even in these, these COVID times, the local uh, 24-hour vet uh, hospital allowed us to crash their facility and stay with him all night for which we're tremendously grateful so he spent a lot of the night kind of laying in my lap and there were moments where I was pretty sure I was just you know being with him through the end and uh, it was incredibly traumatic I, I, I mean I really don't have any words but he um, he pulled through. He's a tough old bird, and uh, we got to the morning, and and he, you know, he was coming around and coming back, and uh, he did have to give me a further scare of a second surgery because one of his sutures came out, and I was like, I, I mean, I've given him a solid talking to that this <laughs> needs to stop now, uh, but he's uh, he's great. Um, the ophthalmologist actually checked up on him a couple of days ago. She said she couldn't be happier with his eyes and, and how they look and total success. And he's actually going back out in his habitat tomorrow. So I've got that to look forward to and uh, couldn't be more excited. Oh, that's amazing. Wow. What a what a great story. That's woo. Um, it was so rough. <laughs> I, I bet. I can't even imagine. Um that what that night must have been like so what how do you bring a bird back when it's crashed well really it was just supportive care so he was um pretty exhausted really so we had him on he was on iv uh drip water you know keeping him hydrated and then we had oxygen for him as well and just kind of supportive care through letting him he did it himself we didn't we didn't do anything for him we just supported him and uh, he came around there was a funny moment I actually wish I'd videoed it uh, in retrospect but I I didn't want to take very many photos and I didn't make any video because I was worried that if he didn't make it that I didn't want pictures of that it would yeah, so uh, a vet tech took one picture of me holding him uh, and on her phone, and I said, if he makes it, you can send it to me, and if he doesn't, you can delete it. <laughs> of course, he did, so I've got one kind of dark, fuzzy photo, but there you go. But when he did start to come round, we were in the ophthalmology surgical suite at this hospital, so there's equipment in there that is worth tens of thousands of dollars, you know, laser eye surgical equipment and, and things I, I don't even know. And of course, Andy is a condor, so he's got a, a 10 and a half foot wingspan. And when he did uh, start to come around at one point, he stood up and decided he needed to stretch. <laughs> and so he threw his wings out and he's beating his wings. And there's um, coffee cups and uh, you know <laughs> surgical tools going flying, and we're 
us humans, myself and our vet taken one of my coworkers are trying to body block these sixty thousand dollar high equipment. Like Andy, we're happy that you're up with my gut stuff, but <laughs> yeah, it was a a, a a funny moment in a in a rough night, and thankfully no damage was <laughs> was done. Oh, that's great. So, um. Tell me a little bit about just like normal husbandry for Andy. How do you take care of him? What does he eat? How do you feed him? All that good stuff. So yeah, he's um, he's one of actually uh, forty plus birds that we have that are part of our ambassador team at uh, Tracy Aviary. Uh, he he's like I said, he's he's just such a good good boy. Uh, we when we're doing husbandry for him, we just go right in his enclosure and, and clean in there with him. He's actually a pest because he's super curious about everything and he <laughs> loves dirt. And so if, if you're trying to clean, you know, and you've got a bucket and you're raking and what have you, you've got this little monkey following you around empty in your uh, empty in your buckets. But um, and then as far as what he eats, uh, he's an obligate carnivore. So uh, Andy and Condos don't eat anything other than meat. And that's what we feed him. He eats um, a variety of, of whole prey, rats, mice, rabbit, quail, uh, and then he really likes organ meat, so beef, heart, kidney, liver, anything like that is he'll go nuts for. And a, a funny story on that, too, because uh, I... I've been asked this question enough times to now realize it's not as silly of a question as I thought the first time I got asked it. Um, but I, I often get asked how long we have to leave his meat out to spoil before he will eat it. <laughs> because vultures, of course, are carrion eaters in the wild and they're quite capable of eating things that would make us deathly ill so they can withstand a hundred times the levels of botulism that we can, for example. Um, but uh, they do prefer their, their meat fresh, just like any other animal. And, and in actual fact, even in the wild, they're so good at finding those carcasses, they'll, they'll often be on it within hours of the animals dying. So in that way, the meat that they eat is fresher than the meat we buy from the average grocery store. But uh, yeah, he likes it fresh. Um, and I think people have this notion that, you know, vultures eat rotten meat and that's what they they prefer and um so myth dispelled love it so i'm curious uh why and i don't you know i don't know maybe this is a thing i should google instead but i've got you here so i'm gonna ask that's okay ask away why if he's a vulture is he called a condor so the um it that's a good question um not all vultures are called vultures um Andean condors do have the the vulture moniker in their scientific name, which is vulture griffiths um but there's twenty three different species of vulture found around the world, seven species found in um north south and central america and then the other 16 species are found in europe asia and africa and they don't all necessarily have a vulture as part of their name you know there's the eurasian griffin for example which is some people do tag vulture onto the end of their name but but you know and then the two species of condor 
the Andean condor, which is what Andy is, and then the California condor that we have here in the United States, um, that magnificent icon of the possibilities of conservation, uh, one of my absolute favorite stories to tell for sure. Uh, but both of the condors are in the vulture family as well. Okay. Yeah. I, I did not know that actually. So that's very cool. Um, yeah. And we've done, I have, I have shared the story of the California condor uh, reintroduction uh, on the podcast already. Um, but yeah, cool. what a, whenever I get a lot of people on social media who hit me up and tell me I'm a bad person because I support zoos and they are evil and all that stuff. And that is the story that I go to immediately. That is just, Absolutely. I know many, but that's my favorite one. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, you hear so many conservation stories. I try to avoid them at all costs, but the doom and gloom ones about how rotten people are and, and how we're destroying the earth. And it is absolutely true. We've got a tremendous amount of power on this planet. Uh, but, you know, we have equal amount of power to do good. California condos would absolutely be extinct without human intervention. And they're just this primo example of it doesn't matter how bad, how bad and hopeless something can seem if you uh, are determined and put your mind to it. We we can turn it around. Those are the stories I like to share with people. You know, I mean, we do a lot of damage as humans, that's for sure. But feeling guilty about that doesn't really um, influence change. Feeling inspired by past successes is much more likely to influence future behavior. And, and that's what we're trying to do. You know, I don't want to make people feel crappy. I want them to feel inspired to do their small part in the big picture. 100%. I agree. So tell me about Harriet. Uh, Harriet. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you've seen her on Facebook. A little she bit. Is, yes, she's the. Um, I, I want to make sure I'm not going to speak out of turn here. Yep, she's the smallest bird that we've got on on our team, and she has the biggest <laughs> personality. She's just become a bit of a, a a sensation, even on the the Tracy Aviary Facebook page. She's like got her own little. Uh, fan base. Harriet, um, for, I mean, John knows, but anybody listening to this podcast does not. So I, I should backtrack a little bit there. Harriet is a burrowing owl and uh, she hatched here at Tracy Aviary to the pair of burrowing owls that we have on exhibit. They actually um, had clutched their eggs uh, and and broke their their first clutch of eggs. So when they reclutched, the uh, amazing aviculture staff uh, pulled the eggs and incubated them. And Harriet is what emerged from that uh, adventure. So we ended up raising her from right out of the egg. Um, I say we, I didn't have a lot to do with the first week. That's not my specialty. And she was so small. She was terrifying to me. Um, she was like the, the literally the size of my thumb. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, very, very tiny. So I've got very, very brilliant co-workers that have um, raised baby birds before. Um, predominantly my my lead trainer Jackie Kozlowski and one of our avicultures 
aviculturist Shauna Foster actually helped with baby Harriet when she was tiny. And uh, I got involved when she was a little less scary. (laughs) And I felt a little less fragile. But, uh, yeah, she's been um, just an absolute joy to to watch her grow. And so I decided I was going to take pictures and make video of her every day, day by day by day by day, so everybody could watch and experience the same thing that I was. And she's just... um, She's an, a really a good example of a, an ambassador bird that was raised correctly. She has absolutely no fear of of anything. Um, just this personable, charming, spunky, larger than life uh, little creature that's just an absolute joy. Tell the story. I was I was doing my little cyber stalking this morning to to prep for the interview, um, and tell the story about. Uh, I, I thought it was. Uh, I think it's Harriet that um, when you put her in her crate. Oh, you mean looking out the window? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Oh God, it's so funny. You've kind of got to see it to really appreciate it. But most of the time, when we're transporting and this goes back to that talking about animals being individuals and now they're all different and you can't make a whole lot of assumptions so most of the time when you're transporting owls in a crate we we spend a lot of time to teach them um to voluntarily load into crates so we can transport them around and then we keep that crate a super safe place for them that's got to be the most safe place um and most of the time with birds like owls uh, they do a lot better if you cover the crate. So they, they're they not seeing a lot of um, overt stimulation. You're rushing by the side of the crate as, as you're moving. Harriet, however, uh, is not so. And she, um, we do cover our crate, and, but you have to pull the cover up at the bottom where the window is so that she'll get right down on her hogs, like almost lay down on her belly so she can watch out the window. She likes to see everything go by. And if you're not paying attention and the cover falls down over the window, she just like yells and yells and yells about it that, that uh, you know, open my window, you know. So it's um, pretty hilarious. And, of course, she is the boss. So, you know, we dutifully uh, respond to all of her commands and uh, she gets the window. But yeah, she she knows what she wants and what she doesn't want and what she likes and what she doesn't like. And boy, oh boy, she is like, my way or the highway, people. <laughs> That's awesome. So let's go back in time for a minute. Um, you're at the Seneca Park Zoo. And you're working with all kinds of animals. Uh, you got Bart, you got some carnivores, you got some other stuff. I know you were working with some birds as well. Um, what made you decide to focus on birds? So, yeah, um, it's a good question. Because if you would have asked me or told me um, 20 years ago that I'd end up working with birds, I would have said, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, I was always a, a mammal person growing up I really like you know big cats and primates and um my favorite animal one of my favorite animals I ever worked with was an orangutan um, back at Seneca Park Zoo named Lowell who I adored 
And I I thought mammals were it. I, I don't know why, you know, I mean, I guess so many people fall into that category, mammals and reptiles. And and birds don't often tend to be the, the most popular. So I did, uh, in addition to other things, um, uh, I started a mixed species uh, stage show at Seneca Park Zoo, and we the bush baby was part of that, and we had an, an alligator in it and um, serval and raccoons and all kinds of things. So there was some mammals, and we added some birds. And so this was my first experience with birds, and I was like, hmm I don't really know what I'm doing with these and the sort of alien creatures to me and I don't think I'm going to enjoy birds. Well, it it just, it's one of those things where I always say, you know, go out of your comfort zone sometimes because you might surprise yourself. Um, within a year of, of working with, um, I started with three. I had an African grey parrot, a tawny owl and a Harris's hawk um, to start off with. And uh, I was just, enchanted by birds and free-flying birds and they they really really grew on me so we added to the repertoire of birds and the more I worked with them the more I learned about them the more I realized that birds are where it's at they're the coolest of the cool and so um, when I, I was actually very happy at Seneca Park Zoo. I wasn't looking for another job. I enjoyed working there. Uh, but a, a friend of mine said, oh, you know, there's this place in Salt Lake City, Tracy Aviary. They're looking for somebody to run their bird show. You'd be a really good fit for this place. And I think you would really like it. So I, I interviewed for the job, not really having too much have an intention of uh, leaving where I was and well there you go here I am <laughs> that was 10 years ago <laughs> so uh yeah do you enjoy being in Salt Lake I I've only been there once on a tour and it was it was a very cool but very unique and different place yeah it um each, each to their own uh, Utah is absolutely stunningly gorgeous uh landscape wise and even in salt lake city we've got the the we're surrounded by the beautiful mountains and you don't have to go very far to be in these national parks like zion national park and uh, moab and arches and brace and even even get into you know yellowstone and the grand canyon is is not far so it's a beautiful part of the country to be in if you're an outdoors person and and you like that kind of life um socially and and culturally yeah it's a little different and um you know i am a bit of a hermit and uh a bit of a workaholic and uh, so i i spend a lot of time i'm either at the aviary to be honest with you i'm either at the aviary or i'm at home with my dogs and cat so it wouldn't really matter <laughs> where i where i live but uh it's a it's a, a different different social climate for sure uh, along with your work at the aviary um i know that you are the vice president of the international association of avian trainers and educators so I, um how, how did you fall into that and tell me a little bit about um 
ayati or however you say it. Yeah, it, there's all kinds of different ways. To, there is no wrong way to say it. I've heard it pronounced so many different ways. Um, but yes, I, um, I've i been the vice president of IAATE now for ooh, uh, 10 or 11 years, I think, uh, and on the board of the organization for a couple of years more than that. Um, I love this organization. It's just, uh, it's just wonderful. Uh, even, even if you're not specialized in birds, obviously we, um, avian trainers and educators, we do have our specialty niche and, um, but there's just such a lot of training is training and, and the science of behavior that we use to work with our birds is the same science that is used for uh, every other animal, including human beings. Uh, as I uh, heard, I think it was Ken Ramirez said one time that it does. You, we all learn the same, whether you're an earthworm or a graduate student, we're learning the same way. Um, so IAATE is a really great organization for anybody that's um, working with animals in, in that capacity. Um, but yeah, I, it's, um, in my role as vice president, my primary responsibility is kind of coordinating and running our annual conference that we do every year. And I recommend at some point, John, when we're out of COVID times and we can all mix and mingle again, you should come to a conference, a finer group of uh, animal nerds you will never meet and incredibly welcoming just uh i i love the presentations and the learning opportunities at the conference but my favorite things is the networking and just um the people you meet the conversations you have the the connections that you make uh i i would say almost all of my really close friends are people that i've met through IAATE, so. That's really incredible. Um, yeah, I'm actually finding a lot of the people that I've talked to on the podcast have become very good, close, personal friends, because like you said, animal nerds are just good people and, yes. and get along and understand. I'm amazed at how many people that I've interviewed for this podcast I'm texting with daily or every couple of days or whatever. It's uh, That's cool. It's, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Um, and then you also are the ambassador animal advisor to the uh, Raptor Taxon Advisory Group or the Raptor Tag. I am. I I am. I'm on the steering committee for the Ambassador Animal Scientific Advisory Group, um, which sort of it, it. These are AZA organizations. Uh, for anybody that's not aware, that um, so help to um, oversee different different areas. So m most species or taxa of animals have. Uh, these programs of people that specialize in that area and, and help to create educational content or um, training, uh, husbandry and management, uh, etc. <clears throat> so yeah, the, the um, ambassador animal advisor to the raptor tag is a new one for me though. So uh, that just started this year and uh, a lot of fun. The uh, raptor tag has got some really great uh, zoo professionals on it so i'm really looking forward to working with them 
So the we've talked a lot about the SSPs of various things on the podcast, um, but can you explain what a tag does and like how they they interact with the SSP? So the the tag is um, a little bit more of a, an umbrella. The SSPs are very specialized, obviously, to one specific species, whereas the tags. Uh, uh, umbrella over an entire taxon group. So in within the raptor tag, for example, you might have the Andean condor SSP, uh, but then that's going to be under the, the raptor tag to a degree. The, the SSPs kind of function on their own uh, and the tags provide a little bit of um, support over, over and above uh, for that. But a wider ranging um, group, if that makes sense, because the raptor tag comprises everything, you know, or hogs, eagles, falcons, owls, vultures, all of the raptors. Right. Makes sense. Very cool. All right. So um, before I get to the the last question um, that I have, I want to ask you two things. First of all, if you just have any more animal stories that you want to share. Well, when it comes to stories about the birds, of course, with as many years as I've been doing this and as many birds as I've worked with, I have bazillions of stories to tell, that's for sure. But in general, um, I think my my favorite things to, to share about any of the birds, anytime I get the opportunity to, is um, about their unique personalities and their individuality. At the aviary, our birds do... Uh, working our, our bird show. We do the bird shows, which are wonderful. But my favorite program that we do is what we call our roaming encounters, where almost all of our ambassador birds will come out with us around the aviary, run around, walk around, fly around, sit on us, whatever it is they want to do. And uh, we meet guests and interact with them as we go. And I think a lot of people are often surprised to learn what individual personalities and characters the birds have. And that's my absolute favorite thing to share is what's unique and special about this one individual bird. And hopefully that inspires them to care about the the species in general. You know, humans don't own the monopoly on having personalities and emotions and likes and dislikes and and characters. Uh, Other animals possess those characteristics as well and when you get to work with them like I do and you learn about them as individuals it's really incredible to to just be able to share parts of your life with them and they're such great teachers um you know I would guess people would Technically, my job description might be bird trainer, although I definitely stopped thinking of myself in terms of being a bird trainer some time ago. I consider myself more of a teacher, but also a learner. Um, I think of it like a partnership. And I really think that's a good way for any animal professional to think about the relationship that you have with the animals that you work with. If you see yourself as a teacher, but also as a learner and the the animal, a teacher and a learner as well. It creates this partnership where you're constantly uh, giving and taking um, great collaborations 
uh, through which you can accomplish a lot together. So the birds definitely are the best teachers I've ever had. I, I credit them with everything that I've learned in my uh, professional career today. So, uh, yep, lots of individual stories, that's for sure, over the time with such a wide range of characters that I've worked with. But uh, I think I'll give them all a shout out in, in one, uh, one fell swoop here that they're all wonderful. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and then I want to open the floor up to you just to share uh, if you have any uh, conservation organizations or anything you want to promote. Obviously, um, you know, I'll promote Tracy Aviary and everything when we do this, but anything that's important to you that you want to share or give a shout out to? Oh, wow. Okay. Mm, I should have thought about this. <laughs> um, so, uh, mm, stumped. Let me think. Uh, really, I, for myself, I mean, I am. Um, huge into vulture conservation uh, in general. Um, th for a long time, th and they still are, they're, mo they're the most imperiled group of birds in the world uh, with, you know, 16 out of the 23 species being uh, threatened, endangered or critically endangered and on the decline. And we absolutely need them around. We even for, from selfish perspectives, we can't afford to lose vultures. Uh, and even if you don't love the way they look or just adore them like I do, and and you want to look at it purely selfishly, you know the the role that they play in the environment is critically important. And when they disappear, I mean, there's all kinds of statistics about that. Even in um, you know, Asia, the billions and billions of dollars that has been spent in human health care in the wake of the Asian vulture crisis. So we definitely need them around. So I guess I will go with um, supporting the two organizations that I uh, tend to always give a shout out to on Andy and Condor's page, um, the Peregrine Fund and um, Volpro. Uh, both of which are just amazing uh, organizations doing phenomenal work actually in situ conservation with vultures, uh, working on um, fixing, discovering and fixing those problems and those reasons that these iconic birds are, are declining. And hopefully... Uh, the success will be that of the California condor and will just continue to to help vultures. So I yeah, I, I guess those if I if I had a million dollars to give away, uh, that's where I'd give it. Makes sense. So and then the last thing that I always like to do, uh, it's become a tradition uh, okay. on this podcast. It's called the Rasafari poop story. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. Uh, well, so bird poop, I will say, in generally speaking, uh, there's some exceptions to this dependent on what bird you're talking about, but it's really not that bad uh, compared to mammals and, and, and reptiles and things. That, as I said, I one of the things I've learned is to never say never or always <laughs> when it comes to talking about animals in any capacity, because there's uh, I guess the only way you can use those words is there's always an exception and never any 100% rules. So there are some birds with nasty poo. 
Um, but most most of it is not that bad. And so I've been pooped on by a variety of uh, different species in my time, and it really doesn't bother me at all. The worse are things uh, with birds or the, the grosser things um, it is. Uh, so if some of our raptors, uh, we feed out uh, day-old chicks to to the raptors. And uh, I don't know what it is about chicks, but if they bite into them just right, uh, there's brain and eyeball juice and who knows what it is that squirts. <laughs> and I have had that squirt right into my mouth. Oh. And it's like, I, I literally, you could cover me in poop. Uh, to take that experience away from me. So hopefully that was <laughs> gross enough for you. A little square in chick brain uh, between friends. Oh, I'm not going to lie. I have I have now asked for, um, oh, I don't know, you're, you're 30-some interviews in, and that's the first time I actually gagged during a <laughs> Ross Safari poop story. Yes! I could Winner. not breathe. I thought I might throw up. That's that's a lot. Wow. Amazing. All right. Do I get a prize? I... Oh, wow. You almost got to see a prize. I'll tell you what. That was, <laughs> woo. That's, yeah. that's special. That's special. Yes, <laughs> it certainly is. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. I, I enjoyed it. This was my first ever podcast, so I had no idea what to expect. And it really was just like chatting with a friend on uh, on Zoom, which we're all doing a lot of these days anyway. So. Exactly. And to think that when I started talking to Helen, I was just excited because of her accent. Who knew there was going to be so much incredible content there as well? What an amazing, amazing human. You can check out Tracy Aviary at tracyaviary.org. And also don't forget to hit up iaate.org and search both on Facebook. Also, the address that you're really going to want to check out, we all know it, is facebook.com slash n. Condor, like the letter N. That's where you're going to want to go and see this amazing bird that you heard so much about today. As always, you can always hit up at Ross Safari on Insta and Facebook as well. Hit that lick now, Cotton Top. Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making it. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan Burke and John Rossi. Listen and subscribe on any podcast app. Please take the time to leave a review as it helps other people find our podcast. You can find Ross Safari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Ross Safari, on the web at rossafari.com, or email me directly at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.